Hey, everybody, this is episode 15 of Artist Soapbox. Hello, and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring artists from the Triangle region of North Carolina talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. In this episode, I'm speaking with choreographer and performer Nicola Bullock about the U.S. premiere of her solo performance piece, Imago. We'll talk about the creative and practical development of Imago, what it means to be a solo performer with a collaborative spirit, and tips for artists who yearn to create their own singular piece. Nicola Bullock is a dancer, choreographer, and performance artist. She's lived in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, New York City, Durham, North Carolina, and most recently, Berlin, Germany. Her work investigates the range of human expression as a means to create potent images and meaning. She holds a degree in psychology and dance and is an original co-founder of DIDA, Durham Independent Dance Artists. Imago is her second evening-length show. Hi, Nicola. Thanks for being here. Hey, Tamara. Thanks for having me. This month, you'll be performing, Imago, at the Durham Fruit Company about a week from today. So January 11th through 13th and 18th through 20th. Ticket info will be in the show notes. How are you feeling about the opening next week? I'm really excited and I'm, of course, completely nervous that I'm not going to be ready Everything's going to fall apart. I'm not going to get any <laughs> Totally sleep. normal, right? Yes. <laughs> All of the normal things, yeah. yeah. But also really excited. So this is an original piece that you describe as a phantasmagorical sci-fi dance theater experience that reckons with the distance between what we are and what we believe ourselves to be. Where did the seed for this piece come from? I was living in Berlin about a year ago and Trump had just been inaugurated. And so I was feeling very, very, very sad and very depressed and very hopeless. And uh, soon after that, I was kind of in a party atmosphere and with a bunch of people who aren't from the States. And so there was this like fun vibe of hanging out and um, enjoying each other. And I just felt awful Mm -hmm. and I couldn't participate. I couldn't join in. I couldn't see the light. I couldn't connect. And these are all things that I like doing. And I thought I was the kind of person who was good at them. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of flashed back to this feeling that I had a lot when I was a teenager of trying to connect and relate or understand the world and my place inside of it. And I and not coming up with an answer. Mm-hmm. And I thought that by the time I was 34, I would have figured it out and been comfortable mm-hmm. in all the moments. But this thing with Trump really brought up a lot of questions in myself and like I started thinking a lot more about my Americanness when I left the country Mm. and um and I started thinking that in this experience of not being what I wanted to be or who I thought I was in that moment uh where I got that from Mm -hmm. and maybe that I had inherited that in some way from this society and culture that is from this is is here in the states Mm -hmm. and I started thinking about myself and that maybe this would be a useful or interesting topic for a lot of people or relatable. But I also started thinking about how on bigger scales of like a political body, this is relevant. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking on the national scale, how does the United States self-define and how and how does that determine how it acts in the world? Mm-hmm. And then if the states define, if the U.S. thinks of itself as like really powerful and, and 
like, I think the word is like an arbiter of mm-hmm. peace and justice and doing good. It does that, but it refuses to see the places where it's not doing that. And so it has this idea of itself that's really far from the reality. And inside of that space, there's all this stuff that's done like violence and rewriting history and fake news that is done to kind of cover over the fact that it's not what it thinks it is or wants mm-hmm. to be. And so I started thinking of this not only as a personal project, but also as a kind of an, an inheritance from the world that I live in, that something is should be other than the way that it actually is like all these things that I think aren't really um acceptable to be in public in this society like sadness and depression or anger or shame or anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) or lots of those shadow things um how they how they still exist even if they're not being acknowledged right right you have this um this feeling and the idea about how your individual experience also is connected to a cultural experience or the experience of a country. How did you take that and make it into a piece of work? How did this piece develop? I I think a big part of it has been gathering memories, quotes, songs, paintings, where what is happening is maybe a really beautiful piece of music Mm -hmm. about a really tragic theme. Or a quote, and there's this David Foster Wallace quote, which is, um, our endless and impossible journey towards home is in fact our home. Mm-hmm. And so I started just gathering quotes and music and memories that feel bittersweet um, for some reason. There's like a, a sadness and a beauty in them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm also working a lot with listening and mm-hmm. intuition. So if I'm in the studio or if I'm in my house and I'm trying to work on the piece and put something together, I am listening for what feels right or moving around a lot in the studio for what movement makes sense, what resonates more so than what looks good. Mm-hmm. Um, trusting that a lot of these ideas of the tension or the feeling of shame or um, fury or being a woman is going to make its way into the process without directly addressing that issue. Mm -hmm. All right. This is a question that I'm going to ask because I'm so far away from being a dancer that I cannot even imagine how you take an idea and then translate it into movement. So when you are actually in the studio getting ready to create something physically, what is happening in your mind? A lot of times I start with an image, uh, an image in my body Mm -hmm. of something that I want to see. And usually it's pretty, um, pretty stark. It's very clear what this image is. And I'm trying to figure out how it makes sense, Mm -hmm. how it fits into those ideas of shame or beauty or sadness. Um, And then finding ways to frame that image so that it makes sense Mm -hmm. so it has a transition into it and out of it and maybe it becomes a motif so you see it more often or maybe you see it once standing and once on the side Mm -hmm. Um, but there are lots of variations I mean it's kind of a trick (laughs) you know you come up with something and then you do lots of variations of what that is you started this piece when you were in Germany and then it it has moved around the world you began with one thing and has the piece transformed over time have you added to it Originally, in that experience I had back in January last year, I thought that the piece was about cognitive dissonance. I Ah. thought it was about 
having a belief or value and then doing an action that was not congruent with that and then bridging the space. So I always had this idea that it was about two things not being the same, mm. but I kind of came up with the fact that it it's not quite cognitive dissonance. It's actually about what we are and what we believe ourselves to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came up with that in April. Um, and by that time, I'd already performed a part of it in Israel. And that part of the piece has just morphed a lot into what it is now. Mm-hmm. And it morphed and there was another version of it this summer in Berlin. And there was another version of it this winter in Berlin. And now this will be kind of a, another version of it here in North Carolina. Okay. All right. In your description of the piece, Imago, you wrote the creature, you, the creature struggles to adopt identity appropriate behavior while remaining connected to its wild nature. What is identity appropriate behavior? So yesterday somebody asked me if I coined that term, identity appropriate and I'm, I don't know. Um, to me, it just makes total sense mm-hmm. because I think of a lot of identities as social constructions of they're very specific to a time and a place in history and in the world um, and in this and in a particular body. So in this version of life, I'm like a white Southern woman mm-hmm. and um, identity appropriate behavior for me is to be nice and smile and make people really comfortable and laugh and not mind when people or men touch me on the small of my back Mm. or kind of like be really gracious. Um, And I feel myself like falling into those things because they're super socialized. Right, Um, right. And the person I was talking to about this yesterday was Jamika, who's Mm -hmm. actually the stage manager, but she brought up the idea of survival. So these figuring out what is appropriate to the identity that you're in is also a matter of survival. Right. And safety. Yeah. Hmm. There is a certain luxury in being able to show up externally the way we're showing up internally that I think not everybody has. And there are so many barriers that we put up for ourselves, right, Uh, to stop ourselves from having that consistency of the internal and the external. But as Jamika said, there are very real barriers to showing up externally in certain ways um, that have to do with um, safety and relationship and um, continuing in a certain life that you've grown accustomed to. So what sounds like a pretty easy concept is actually a really dangerous and complicated one to embody and to, to live out. Which I think is why it's theater is so amazing. Mm-hmm. And the space of a performance, uh, I think as an audience member, you can put so many things on hold when you enter it because you're asking to be taken somewhere else. You're asking mm-hmm. for some sort of magic to happen. And um, I mean, at least I am when I see stuff. I really want to see something that shows me something either really new or really familiar that I never put into words, oftentimes both. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you have the space to do that when you're, when you're there in the, in the room with the art happening. Is this your first solo performance piece? It's my first evening-length solo piece, yeah. Okay. And evening-length means 45 minutes? Yeah, 45 to an hour. Okay. That's a long time. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't have to tell me that. 
Um, I know you as a very collaborative person and a very collaborative artist, and it seems like you preserved that spirit of collaboration by bringing together a team of folks to produce Imago creatively and practically. Could you tell us about your team and why you decided to bring others on board the process? Uh, I decided to pull other people into this process totally pragmatically. I've done this a million times of producing a show or choreographing or performing. And I, I know at this point that I need a lot of help. Mm. And that help is um, is really pragmatic of just who's going to build that thing. I don't know how to do that. But it's also just to have support in the space and other warm bodies around me while I'm asking questions of the piece and mm-hmm. um, how to do how to make it happen. Mm-hmm. You have a dramaturg, a production manager, a technical director, stage manager, costume designer. I know. I got that, everybody. That's quite, a, that's quite a team. And some of them you were working with remotely while you were in Germany. And are there also people – you have somebody on the West Coast, somebody back in Germany, some people who are local to the Triangle area. How does that long-distance collaboration work as you're building a piece like this? It's a lot of Skype and FaceTime, <laughs> <laughs> and, FaceTime uh, and emails. And um, also having worked like this before, I know that there's a there's a limited amount I can expect people to really be present in a piece unless I'm there. Mm-hmm. And so that's been basically true for everybody. The production manager has been kind of walking with me the whole way. Who's Nicole Wasserman? She's just been walking with me the whole way of like, do this this week. Next week, we're going to cover this. We're going to write this. Uh, So she's really been with me the whole time. But everybody else, it's been like, we'll get real when we're in person. Mm -hmm. And now you are in person and people are jumping in. Yeah, people are jumping in. Um, Patience and Jamaica are amazing. And they've been they've been there. I've only been in town for two weeks. Um, and it was over the holidays, so it's kind of been hard to connect, but mm-hmm. I feel really confident going into this week and next week, which is the show week that they're going to be there. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing team of people. So yeah. it's so important. I mean, I think people hear you know, solo performance piece and they had this idea that it's a sort of a one person band kind of experience, but we know that in order to make any kind of art, you really need a team. And especially, I think, when you're dealing with um, everything that comes up to put a solo performance piece up, there's a lot of emotion involved in in addition to the logistics involved. And you really do need people around you to support, not you personally, but anyone would need people around to support that process, to um, bounce ideas off of, to just know that you're not alone <laughs> at the end of the day with and also to have something that other people think is important as important as you think it is that is such a gift to get from people around us when we're making work it's like I think this is really important can you think this is important too and I'm so glad that you have a group of people who are doing that for you now as I mentioned you've been abroad for almost two years and you mentioned a little bit in the beginning about how being away from the United States made you think about being an American and America in kind of a different way. 
why did you decide to perform Imago in Durham? Why did you decide to come back here and do this piece? It's funny because ever since moving, I've been much more aware of trying to say I'm just from the United States, not I'm American because mm. America is so, so big. So, but there's not a convenient way to say I'm United Statesian. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to kind of say I'm American and keep in mind that that is, that means I'm just from the U.S. Right. Um but to answer your question, I'm doing this in Durham because I love Durham. Mm. It's also possible here. Um, I know a lot of people and I have relationships and trust built with not just kind of people to help put the show together, but also audiences. And um, yeah, it makes it possible. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear a little bit more about your experience living abroad. You talk about what it's been like to make art there. Yeah, it's been it's been really strange, kind of like the tools that I developed here. And I thought I was like, oh, these are great tools. Kind of like I went there and I was like, oh, there are people in this world with lots of different tools and I want those tools now. Hmm. Uh, and some of those tools are around improvisation and a lot of them are around playfulness. Hmm. Um, there's a, There's sometimes a playfulness in just everyday communication that I find there that I don't find here where where it's not always about getting information across and getting to the point and being efficient and clear. Sometimes it's about having a dance party mm. and that even though that might not have answered your question in the most direct way, it's still a possible answer. So it's a little bit just expanding the range of responses you can have to something and being much more creative in everyday life. Mm. And that's super satisfying for me. Do you think that the relationship is different between artists and audience? It's definitely a different set of expectations. I think that people go to theater and dance in Berlin who don't necessarily know anybody in the show Mm. (laughs) or haven't heard about it a million times. They just see a flyer and they go because they're interested. It's a little bit more enmeshed in the fabric of life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And there's a tremendous amount of patience for like durational conceptual work hmm. um which isn't by nature playful but it also I, th- I think at least a lot of the stuff I've seen on stage has been actually has been playful mm-hmm. it's not always like fun and upbeat but it's taking something um familiar and just kind of putting it through like a broken broken mirror or something mm-hmm. before we recorded you talked about this idea of playing with reality which isn't always playful, but is a kind of play that we don't often see here, or aren't as open to here, either as audience members or as creators. So how has that experience affected the way you make art here in the United States? So what I've learned is that the, the source material can be everything. Everything in every single moment. The source material can be your voice, your body. It can be the pillow. It can be the computer. It can be the water bottle. It can be anything. So when you start thinking about relating to reality or space just a little bit differently, you're all. You can also start thinking about relating to concepts a little bit differently, relating to ideas a little bit differently. And you don't have to be hard and fast in what that mm. is. You can shift for a second. And uh, and that opens up a whole new world of seeing the same thing from a slightly different perspective and then um, looking for something about 
tension, mm-hmm. something about the tension between where you were and where you are and what you're seeing and how to communicate and hold all of that at one time while simultaneously blowing it all apart. Mm-hmm. What makes a piece dance theater versus just dance? And I'm doing just with quotes because I realized that I'm not trying to minimize it, but I, what makes one a dash and another one not? Well, I'm not just dancing. Right. I think there is a lot of theatrical components uh, to the, to the work. Mm-hmm. I know you as an actor and, uh, and performer in lots of different ways. So it makes sense to me but every time I see a program and I see dance theater, I'm like, I don't know what the difference. I mean, I feel like all dance is theatrical. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I'm really interested in the way that we define things. Is it theater when people talk? Is it theater when there are when more of a narrative? Like what makes theater theater? I think it's a convenient way of telling audiences that they, to me at least, that they shouldn't expect me to just dance ah uh-huh. so for me it, everything I'm doing could could kind of be in dance although I do talk some okay um but for me it's just a convenient way of saying don't get too comfortable at, or don't come with false expectations that this is just a dance show in the publicity photos you're wearing a really interesting mask that goes around the back of your head and and covers your head entirely looks like it's made up of strips of fabric and I've seen you take it off in one of the trailers for the piece. So that seems to be a really important part of the show. Would you talk a little bit about how you developed that and why it's a, it's a part of this piece? Sure. Two and a half years ago in Germany, I was, I found these strips of fabric wrapped around a rusty old pipe um, and they were really, really, really disgusting. And I found out, but I thought they were kind of beautiful. And I found out the story of it was that like 30 to 50 years ago, old East German women wrapped these pipes in fabric to keep them from bursting when the pipes froze. Right. So I found them. And what was so cool about them was that, yeah, they're totally gross and moldy. And they were, they were a lot worse, but um, they've dried out. But they also, like, places where maybe it was folded over, there's still remnants of this original fabric. So, like, Mm. tiny flowers on a purple background. Um, But you have to – you can't tell that from the audience. I just know that from working with it for the past few years. Right. And I like that it's kind of a helmet. It feels very protective um, and also completely – it completely takes away the – the ability to see my face. Mm-hmm. So it completely takes away all of that information that somebody might get from my face. And so the first time I started performing with it, per, as a performer, I just, the feeling was really thrilling and um, I liked it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that because, it, I think it that not being able to see a face kind of distances but also brings a lot closer the performer who's underneath it because the person in the audience doesn't know what is happening for them they have to fill in a lot more questions about what the heck is going on um, but I think it also in some ways makes it easier to project yourself into that because you can't see a clear face of an identity of an identifiable person 
again, going back to the idea of safety, I think having something in front of our faces is a way, at least for me, of making myself feel safe. Sometimes even just wearing my glasses gives that little bit of distance. I feel slightly protected um, because I know that when people see my face, they'll be able to read a lot of what is going on for me internally that I might want to hide um, and things that I'm working through. And also they will make judgments about me just based on my face. We get so much information like that. And so there is a certain freedom, as you mentioned, that comes with um, covering up certain really vulnerable parts of ourselves in order to show up more fully as ourselves, which is kind of ironic. Well said. You and I are friends and we work together on several projects and I am a great admirer of your work and your work ethic and the way you move between all of these types of artistic mediums. And I've been an admirer of you for a a long time. So I was thrilled when you reached out to me from Germany (laughs) at the end of October. And um, at that point, we emailed back and forth and managed an international FaceTime to sort through where you were in the process of putting together this piece and you and I were working together in that time in kind of a different way. And I wonder if you would describe what you were looking for in our professional relationship. I was looking for a few things. I was looking for a connection to somebody who'd been through this process before in every single way, as a performer, as a producer, as a creator, um, in every way. I was like, you can relate. So I, I wanted to be able to be seen by somebody who'd done it, been through it before. And I also realized after the fact that I wanted somebody else here in Durham who would be sitting in the audience and see the piece and not just see the 45 minutes or an hour, but but also know the history of it mm-hmm. and also be able to see me inside of it. And uh, I really needed that here in Durham. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that I'm doing this podcast is to give folks a sense of the process that artists go through and not just the product because I feel like we really are very product focused and that makes sense. I mean, that's what people pay the money to go see is the product. But there's so much more that you can learn when you actually talk to the artists as people and you actually hear what they're going through that adds a depth to that experience as an audience member. And I also think that as artists, it can be very lonely to walk through the process of creation and then production without people witnessing that journey, which is lengthy and dangerous and deep and fraught and joyful and all of those things. And it can be really helpful to have other people around you to kind of to witness that and encourage that. How did our relationship, which I'm going to call a coaching relationship, how did that serve you and the project? Well, for a while we were writing emails. I was writing an email once a week to go over what I had gotten accomplished this week and also how I was feeling about the process. And that was really nice just to voice that. Even 
so I could read it when you got back to me and be like, what did I say again? And you would reflect back to me some of the things that I had expressed. And I was like, oh, that that's cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when you say it, it sounds great. I, <laughs> I didn't realize that I wrote those words. Mm-hmm. Um, so it helped me be able to see what I was going through a little bit more clearly. And there was also like one particular exercise that really worked for me, which was, and maybe because balloons are part of uh, Imago, but was this idea of drawing balloons and inside of each balloon, writing something good that had come of this project. And so I started doing that as balloons. And the idea was like, what's keeping me afloat right now. Mm. And so all these beautiful things have really developed as a result of doing this project that never would have happened otherwise. And I could kind of go back to that page in my journal and be like, Oh, look that balloon and that balloon. And that was really cool. Mm -hmm. I have, I have this image when you talk about that of this giant bunch of balloons that kind of help you float over the little chasms. We all get to the edge when we're creating something and you look down and it looks like you might fall. And so I think we need these little balloons to kind of help us jump to the other side. Just that little extra buoyancy to help get over that. And it's easy to lose track of those. I think the image of balloons really works well because these beautiful things that happen float away so quickly. You know, it's easy to to just let them go and disappear. But we really actually need to hold on to them. Your piece is happening next week. And even though you've had several different permutations of it, how are you taking care of yourself as you approach next week? I'm not. (laughs) Next question. (laughs) How would you recommend that people take care of themselves before going into a piece like this, which is requiring quite a bit of you? I guess to just like revise my answer a little Mm bit I'm living in one of my favorite places in the world right now at my friend's house Um, and going home to that place feels really really good for me and I feel super welcome there so that's kind of one and they have a bathtub Mm -hmm. so I can take baths and that's that's wonderful I recommend for anyone who's really involved in a intensive process to set aside a little time a day, at least like half an hour where you're not completely obsessing about the project, Mm -hmm. like really not. And that doesn't mean obsessing about something else. It means like enjoying your food Mm -hmm. for a meal or taking a bath or meditating, just something that's really separate from the project. The topic that you're, that you're tackling with Imago, this distance between who we are and and who we want to be, the animal instinct or a wild nature butting up against these social constructions of femininity and desire and aging. These are very raw things to wrestle with in front of an audience. Why did you decide to go there? I guess I have a lot of fun. I'm creating it, so I get to put on stage whatever I want. And sometimes, I mean, it's, you know how, like, when you say something that's true for you, even if it's really ugly, it feels really good mm-hmm. um, because you're not holding it by yourself anymore. Um, you're being seen as a whole human being, even with this, like, ugliness. 
And that's part of, so for one thing, I'm just having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And for another thing, I'm getting to put on display these, these shames and these fears and these desires I just inherited by being a human. And I inherited by being in this body that I'm in. So in that way, I'm, I would love it if people can relate. I would love it if people can say, I've never, I really relate to that. I would never have thought of it doing that in that way, but I can see the, the masking, why that's necessary, or I can see why this version of that is cathartic. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would say the other thing, like Jamaica and I were talking last night about this and it was like, we don't have the luxury of not going deep anymore. Mm. We really don't. This is like such a critical time. And that going deep doesn't always have to equate to struggle and pain. And it does often. But there's also so much kind of like freedom and beauty in the journey and liberation in the in that. Mm-hmm. And being fully alive. And being fully alive. And that's part of the fun. That's part of the fun for me. Is I feel really alive when I make art. When I make when art. When I'm on stage. Yeah. When I'm writing, when you kind of get into that zone or I feel like I can I'm connecting with other people and that and then I feel like we're both we're all alive together. And that's really powerful. Are there other things that you've learned during this process that you think would be useful for others? In thinking about this, I think the most useful thing I have to say is that I think we go into the artistic process and the more you can let it, let what you're building fall down again and again and just topple. Uh, And the more you can blow it up. I mean, eventually you do have to kind of put something together, but the more you can blow up your ideas about what it should be, what it should look like, how it should sound, uh, where the audience should sit, like Mm -hmm. even down to very practical things like, Heck yeah, that's why we go into the practice of making art in the first place is so that our minds can be blown, I think, so that you're not doing the same thing. So even when that feels awful and scary and um, everything you thought you knew isn't true, that's the point. Mm-hmm. So you're on, you know, you're you're on, on the, the right, right track. track. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's very encouraging because I think that's the point at which we could just fold. What's next for you, for Imago, post-Durham? Well, uh, right now, there's an excerpt from Imago that I am going to perform in the country, Georgia, at a contemporary experimental dance festival. And I'm so excited about that because uh, I've never been there. Mm-hmm. It's a totally new experience. And I'll also apply to show Imago in other places around the country, but maybe also in Europe, mm-hmm. maybe around the world. Um, I don't want the piece to end with just this because mm-hmm. I think. Maybe I'll keep working on it. I will probably table it for a while. This has been a big push. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, putting out what, I, what I've what i already created, sending out some videos, I'll do that. And me, I'm going to go back to Berlin and I'm going to quiet my life down and do a more predictable thing for a long time of teaching movement classes and learning German and living with my kittens and um, just kind of kind of grounding and Mm -hmm. gathering again after the explosion of this piece. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Nicola, for this really inspiring conversation. I'm so excited to see this piece. 
Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. You can support us via our Patreon campaign at www.patreon.com slash artist soapbox. For more information about today's episode, go to artistsoapbox.org and we're out. <laughs>